The scripture from today's teaching is Jeremiah 29, 1 through 7. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers, and departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Jemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease." But seek the welfare of the city, which I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. This is the word of God to us. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Don. Well, good morning, friends. Uh, If you don't know me, my name is Brandon. I get to serve as one of the pastors here at the church. And uh, I want to say a couple things before we dive in. Uh, if you're here and you are not a follower of Jesus, Andrew mentioned this a second ago, um, but I just want to say you are, you are so welcome here. We're, we're grateful to have you today, and, and we want you to know that this is a place where you really can uh, show up and wrestle with the claims of Christianity and have doubts and be skeptical and know that you can belong here even before you believe. And, uh, and if you have questions, we want to we help wrestle through those with you. We want to help you process the claims of Jesus. Um, and I also want to say, if you're new to the church, uh, you're here on a really good day. Um, I mean, you guys, it's a special day. You've got a second string preacher, it's Labor Day weekend, got a nice Old Testament text here with a lot of big names, so um, you are getting value for your money today. It's going to be a good one. Um, When I was about eight years old, uh, I remember this time hanging out with a buddy, and uh, we we were hanging out in his living room, playing Ken Griffey Jr. baseball, listening to Big Willie style, and his his dad walks into the living room, and uh, his dad was dressed... I kid you not, like head to toe in chainmail armor. He had like a cape on uh, and then like a massive real life sword uh, in a sheath. And he like walks into the living room and he's like, what do you guys think? And um, as an eight-year-old kid, I was like, I think you are maybe the coolest dad of all time. Like, this is incredible. This is amazing. Uh, now, almost 30 years later, I'm not so sure what I think about a grown man with an actual sword. But what I do know is that they exist. They're out there. Uh, And they like to congregate at something called the Medieval Fair. Any fans of the Medieval Fair? All right, yeah. We're proud. We're proud of this. Any participants? All right. Awesome. Awesome. Good. Well, uh, here's the thing that I do know about Medieval Fairs. Not a whole lot, but here's what I do know. They happen. Um, They happen. 
They happen in our city. They happen all around the place. Um, I'm not exactly sure. Like in my neighborhood, there are people that come out and they dress up. And uh, they do this thing called LARPing, which is live action role playing. You guys are going to learn a lot about medieval fairs in this sermon. I'm just warning you. Um, not really. Uh, but they show up and they, uh, they start doing their thing. And it's like, oh man, I didn't even know it was this day. But it is. Um, if you live in Norman, there's like a whole week, right? Like where there's a medieval fair and it's like a big, huge deal. Um, but here's the deal I think about uh, medieval fairs for, for most people. The medieval fair is largely inconsequential, right? Like you notice it or you know that it's happening because one day you drive by and you see two dudes jousting and you're like, oh, this is somewhat unusual. There's something happening today. Oh, it's the medieval fair. But for most people, like the next thought isn't, oh my goodness, I've got to like carve out time and go to the medieval fair. It's more like, hey, if I am looking to have a good corn dog later on this week, that's going to be maybe like in my top four choices. So, so it's kind of that. And, uh, and, and so it starts, it happens, and then it ends. And then I think for the majority of people, you know, like you may go and you may enjoy the medieval fair, but when it ends... I don't think anybody's like really, really devastated. I don't think the general public is like incredibly bummed out that it's over. It's like, okay, it's, uh, you know, that was kind of an unusual thing in the life of our city. It happened, you know, it's, it's gone now, but it's not a really big deal, right? It really has no impact on my life whatsoever. And the question that I have for us today, the thing that I'm wrestling with is, are we like that? Like as a church, is that, is that us? Because there are some, some similarities to be sure, right? Like we get dressed up and we congregate together, right? Some of our language is a little bit old school, especially certain hymns, right? There's some these and thous, kind of sounds a little bit medieval. And, uh, and you know, some of the things we say and do and the customs feel a little outdated to the outside world. People are like, what's going on? Like that parking lot is full today. Oh, it must be Sunday. Darn it, I can't get Chick-fil-A today. And that's it. That's it. But the deeper question is, what would happen in our city? What would happen in your neighborhood and in my neighborhood? What would happen in this part of the city if we packed up? If we, if we stopped meeting together on Sundays, if we stopped doing this, if we stopped existing, if our church, if Frontline South ceased to exist, would our city even notice Would it even matter? Or would it be like the medieval fair? We came and we went, and it really didn't matter to anyone. And the answer to that question is really based on what kind of church we are. Now, I didn't say what kind of church we want to be, but what kind of church we are. See, I'm about to talk about some things that we've talked about before, and I'm going to give you some frameworks that you've heard before, and not a lot of new things are going to be said today. But here's the reality. We can talk about these things until we're blue in the face, but if nothing ever changes, if the kind of church that we actually are never actually changes, if we don't start to behave like a church that's radically committed to following Jesus, then what's even the point? What's the point, man? Let's don't just talk about it. Let's talk about what kind of church we actually are going to be, and then let's be it. And so when we think about what kind of church we are, I'm going to give you a helpful grid to kind of figure out, to kind of determine where we're at, okay? So four kinds of churches, four kinds of churches. Number one, we could be a church that is against the city, right? 
This is the church that's uh, got the passive-aggressive church signs out front, you know? Like, you think it's hot out there, wait until you go to hell, right? Those churches, <laughs> right? Pretty passive-aggressive, pretty, pretty hostile towards culture, right? Like, constantly at war, right? Aggressive towards culture, boycotting whatever Harry Potter movie because wizards are bad and all of those kind of things. And it's just this posture of like, man, whatever the culture is doing, we are against the culture, right? Like it's us versus them and that's it, okay? The church that's against the city. But then you have the church that's of the city, the church of the city, and this is, the, this is the flip side of that, right? This is the church that's, that's going, hey, whatever the culture is saying, whatever the culture is doing, whatever the culture has embraced, we're going to embrace all that same stuff, right? Like, you have your truth, you do you, we're just going to sit over here and we're going to be the cool church and we're going to welcome you in and whatever you're doing, whatever your, you know, whatever your sin is, like whatever it is, we want to fully embrace it and that's part of you and it's okay and we're not going to confront you, we're not even going to preach from the Bible, we're going to preach from the shack, it's just going to be like a love fest and you're just, you're just welcome to be here and be exactly who you are, nobody's going to call you to change or follow Jesus or anything like that. So you've got the church that's against the city, the church that's of the city, but you also have a church that's in the city, and this is a little more subtle, but these are the churches that just kind of keep to themselves, right? They're not, they're not like lobbing gospel grenades into the culture. They're also not really like opening up the doors and beating the drum and welcoming people in. They're just kind of there. Geographically, they exist in the city. They're there, but it's kind of a cloistered group of people, Right? They keep to themselves. They keep quiet. They don't rock the boat. They don't really do anything. They're just waiting for the rapture. End of story. That's the church that's in the city. But then we have this fourth church, and it's a church that's for the city. A church for the city. And the thing about the church for the city is that if you ask the question, hey, what would happen if this church went away? What if this church packed up, went home, ceased to exist? What would happen in the city? How would the city respond? Would people respond like the medieval fair and just be like, oh, well, who cares? Maybe we'll get it next year. Or would, would it actually devastate the city? And the answer is yes, Absolutely. Because a church that's for the city so brings the love of God to come to bear on the lives of real people in tangible ways. They don't just talk about the kingdom of God. They actually demonstrate the kingdom of God in such a way that if they went away, every part of the city would fill the lack and the void that's left as a result. And so what we're going to do with the rest of our time this morning is we're going to wrestle with the question, what does it mean to be a church for the city? Not to just talk about it, not to just say, hey, this is what it would look like. Can you imagine? Wouldn't that be great? No. What does it mean to be a church for the city? And to answer that question, I want to give you three marks of a church that's for the city. These are these three characteristics that we have got to have if this is how we want to live as a church. So number one, First, Mark, first thing that we've got to do is we've got to recognize that God has sovereignly planted us in dark places. In Jeremiah 29, people of God find themselves in exile 
And they hear the prophet Jeremiah, this man who speaks on behalf of God, who speaks to God, is actually coming to deliver a letter to them. And, and if you put yourselves in the shoes of the people of God, here's, here's what's happening, right? They've been uh, deported. They've been in captivity. They've been under wicked rule and oppression for a couple of decades, and so here they are, they're waiting, they're, they're in this state of just like, man, we are, we are being crushed right now, and there's this also underneath the surface, this, uh, this thing of just, uh, just anticipation, of longing, of hope, of one day, the God, the same God who delivered his people from Egypt, this same God is going to come and he's going to deliver us from Babylon. And so this letter comes from Jeremiah. And so if you're the people of God, here it is. This is the big day. You've waited for this. You've repented. You know, okay, we rebelled against God. We've, we've done our time. And now it's time to pack our bags, right? They're talking trash to the Babylonians. They're ready to go. And then the letter arrives and it says this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, and catch this, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. He goes on, say, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. So listen, you get this letter, and if you're the people of God, if there was any doubt of why are we here? Why are we in this place? Why are we still here? Is it because Nebuchadnezzar? Is it because we like bamboozled ourselves and now we're here? If there was any doubt who was responsible for bringing these people into exile, it was the living God. And so these people who had waited to be delivered from the hands of their wicked oppressors, they wait and they wait and receive this letter just to find out that it was the God that they had put their hope in who's behind their exile all along. And if you can just imagine the sort of outcry of the people of God, God, what have you done? God, how could you have brought us into this place? Can't you see that it's so dark here, that it's so hopeless here, that this is not our home, this is not where we should be? And the reality for a lot of us is, is I think that's, that sounds a lot like us a lot of the time, Right? We look around at our surroundings. We look at, at where we live and we say to ourselves, like, this is not my home. It's just where I live. I'm just passing through. Like, God has something better for me. We start to resent the place where God has, has put us or where we find ourselves. And we start to look at all the darkness around us and we start to go, man, we've got to get out of this place. We've got to move on from here. The good life is somewhere else. It can't be here in this darkness. Or, some of us, we don't even realize it, right? We're in the darkness and we don't even realize it. Uh, when I was in college, uh, I was a part of a church where every summer we would take mission trips and we'd go down to Mexico. And uh, this one trip in particular stands out to me. Uh, it was a trip where we went and, and all week we did uh, construction and medical projects and all these things. But the last day, the last day of the trip, uh, we went into this dump, and uh, we loaded up, and we had all this food, and we were going to go feed people in the dump. And uh, they don't have a dump like we have, like one nice mountain. That was not their dump. We, we drove into this dump, and it felt like we drove for a long time. And we got to the middle of this dump, and we looked around. It was, 
It was like as far as the eye could see, just mounds and mounds of garbage and trash. And then all throughout, tents and uh, structures that had been built. And so we parked our nice, shiny church vans, and we got all these bags of rice and beans, and people started coming out of the dump. Hundreds of people lined up, and they start coming through the line and taking food. And I remember at some point just feeling like, just overwhelmed with the love of God and the compassion of God, and just this sense of like, man, this is, this is a really, really dark place. And just, just this moment that I, that I kind of took a snapshot in my mind and just said to myself, I cannot forget this. I've got to remember this moment because this is a really dark place and this is a moment I'm being invited into to, to share the love of God with people, to be light in a dark place. I'm not going to forget this. Well, we got on our nice church vans and drove back to a nice hotel. I think on the way back home, we stopped in a nice beach somewhere. And I got home, and that thought crossed my mind a few more times. I can't forget that. I can't forget that moment. But then eventually, got back into a normal routine, started doing the same stuff I normally did. Life got back to normal. And again, I just got insulated from everything that I had seen and everything that I had done. But then, every once in a while, that feeling would come over me again, that feeling of compassion that remembrance, that, that thing that, man, that was something beautiful that God did. That was like a marker in my life that I can look back to and say, man, that's what it's about. Going into the darkness, loving people far from God. I've got to go back there, and I've got to do that again. And every, every so often, I'd have that thought, man, I've got to go back to that place. That was a dark place. That place, someplace like it, someplace where there is true darkness. And then I remember a time where the Lord just opened my eyes. And in the middle of a moment like that, where I was saying, I've got to go back there. That was a dark place, and I've got to go back there. And I had that compassion in my heart. And then it was like the Lord opened my eyes, and he said, hey, you live in a dump. You live in a dump. It's not a a physical dump. It's not trash everywhere. But you live in darkness, and you don't even see it. That compassion that you felt there... Like, I want you to have that compassion for this present darkness. Friends, the reality for all of us is that you and I have been placed by a sovereign God in dark, dark places. Now, to be sure, there are some of you who have been gifted and called by God to go to uproot your life and spend long periods of time overseas or across borders. And man, we praise God for that. That is, that is a huge need, and we want to celebrate that, and we want to pray for you and equip you and send you. But listen, every single person in this room has been placed somewhere. And wherever you are, it's dark there. It's dark. Maybe it's not a physical dump. Maybe it's not the same kind of darkness. But where you live, there is darkness. Make no mistake about it. Now, maybe where you live, darkness looks like a middle-aged man who wakes up and goes to work and comes home and kisses his wife and kids and then secretly looks at porn on his phone before bed and then wakes up and does it all over again. Maybe in your neighborhood, darkness looks like little kids that go to bed hungry and they look forward to school the next day because they know they're going to get a a real meal at school. 
And, and we could talk about all other kinds of darkness. We could go on and on about materialism and the idol of self and the pursuit of happiness at all costs. But here's the point. There is darkness where you live. God has put you in dark places, and it's not an accident. Do you know that when you moved into your neighborhood, God wasn't up in heaven going, Oh, snap, there are sinners all over the place. Get out of there. No. God puts you where you live because he loves where you live. He loves your neighborhood. He cares about your neighbors. And he's placed you there to be a light in darkness. And that means whether you're about to move to India and live there for a couple years, if you're a college student and you're like, Oklahoma is definitely not my final destination, maybe you're newlyweds and you're renting right now and you're like, we're, we're going to move up eventually, man, hey, regardless of where you are going, where you are now matters because the living God has put you there and he's put you there for a purpose. So what's the purpose? That brings us to our second mark of a church that's for the city. And if we're going to be one, then we've got to contribute to the thriving and flourishing of our city. Look at verse 5. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. Build houses, plant gardens, multiply, seek the welfare of the city, pray for the city. There's a sense in which God is loving the Babylonians through his people in some really simple, really practical, really tangible ways, right? Improving society, investing in the future, building lasting change. But there's something a whole, whole lot deeper that God is doing here. Listen, it's one thing for us to say, hey, we love our city, right? That used to mean something like 20 years ago. If you were to say, I love Oklahoma City, people would have looked at you and been like, why? This is like the lamest city in the world. What do you mean you love this city? But if you say that now, it's like, well, of course, join the club. We all love the city. This city's cool. We got cool restaurants. We got a basketball team. We got a streetcar, right? Like, like everybody's all in on Oklahoma City. But when God calls his people to seek the welfare of the city, that word welfare in Hebrew is the word shalom, which means a whole lot more than having this sort of conditional pride in your city because we got a Trader Joe's and we're on the up and up and things are going really, really well, right? This is not gentrification. This is not just doing good in the city for the sake of doing good in the city. Here's how Tim Keller talks about bringing the shalom of God to the city and what that means. He says, shalom means complete reconciliation a state of the fullest flourishing in every dimension, physical, emotional, social, and spiritual, because all relationships are right, perfect, and filled with joy. Shalom is this idea of of everything that was being experienced in the garden before sin ever entered the world. God created all things and said, this is very good. 
This is what I pictured. This is what I wanted. This is according to plan. This is without spot or blemish. This is exactly what I want. And so when God says, seek the welfare of the city, he is saying, hey, work to see my kingdom come and my will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. And so the question we've got to ask ourselves is, where does our city need to experience the shalom of God? Where do our neighborhoods need shalom, right? And, and listen, yes, our neighborhoods and our city needs gospel proclamation, right? They need the gospel. They need to hear the good news. But pushing back darkness is not only gospel proclamation. It is that, but it's also kingdom demonstration, right? Alan Kreider says this about the early church and the way they demonstrated the kingdom. He says, what the outsiders saw was not their worship, It was their habitus. According to Tertullian, the outsiders looked at the Christians and saw them energetically feeding the poor and burying them, caring for boys and girls who lacked property and parents and being attentive to aged slaves and prisoners. They interpreted these actions as works of love. And they said, look, look how they love one another. They did not say, listen to the Christian's message. They did not say, read what they write. Hearing and reading were important, and some early Christians worked to communicate in these ways too. But we must not miss the reality. The pagans said, look, Christianity's truth was visible. It embodied, and it was enacted by its members. It was made tangible and sacramental. So where is there darkness in our neighborhood? Where are there problems? Where is there brokenness in your community? Where are there things that are broken, and how can we work to fix those things? Listen, we can't just stop there. We can't just stop with, like, making another list identifying the problems, right? Like, listen, we've done that, okay? We can talk about what's wrong with our city all day long, and some of us have, but listen, if we never actually do anything, right? Like, you can study the book of James until your eyeballs fall out of your head, but if you never cross the road and actually tangibly love and serve a widow, then what in the world is the point, It requires action. And as we work to engage our city, we're invited to actually step in, not just to talk about the work, but to actually do the work. And then the word of God even takes us a layer deeper. And this is what takes us to our third mark of a church for the city. And that last one is that we want to cultivate love for our neighbors. If we read back through this passage, God's message to his people is, hey, don't just build houses, live in those houses. Don't just plant gardens, eat the produce. Don't just fight for the shalom of the city, experience the shalom of God. Actually, spend time in the peace of God, and then when you go into your city, into the darkness, bring the peaceful presence of God into the dark places of your city. Listen, friends, we can get to a place where we realize that God loves our city and we see it and we know that we've been planted there. We can realize that he loves our city. We can actually even come to the place where we engage the work of mission and yet never actually have our hearts stirred with compassion to actually love our neighbors. 
And here's the thing, like, that was the story of Jonah, right? You remember Jonah's story? Like, God says, hey, I'm going to send you into this really, really dark place. And Jonah's like, no, I don't want to go. And, and he resists God. And think about this. When Jonah actually does finally go to Nineveh and do the work that God had called him to, it's not because he had a change of heart. It was because he didn't want to live in a fish, right? Like, Jonah finally goes, and God actually works in spite of his stupidity. God moves. God saves people. But then in the end, what is Jonah doing? He's throwing a fit. He's pouting. He's mad because God actually cared for and loved and saved people that he hated. Listen, it's possible for us to do everything that we talked about and still not be a church for the city. And the reason is, a church for the city doesn't just engage mission to check a box. A church that's for the city actually has God's heart for the city. And I know I say that, and for a lot of us in this room, you're like, oh man, I don't have that. I don't automatically feel love and compassion and this stirring for my city, right? Like far more often, I'm annoyed with my neighbors. Far more often, I see the city and the way that parts of it are in disarray, and I'm just disgusted by that. I don't have the heart of God for my city. Listen, you're not alone. You're not alone. This is a, this is a garden, and it's not just going to produce fruit on its own. It has to be cultivated. And so the question before us, as we start to wrap this up, is how in the world do we cultivate a love for our neighbor in our personal lives? A few things to remember. One, we've got to remember who our neighbors are. In the first century, if you talked about your neighbors, here's who you'd think of. You'd think about like your next-door neighbors. You'd think about maybe the people who lived across the street from you. So Jesus had to come, and Jesus had to like blow up that paradigm and expand the meaning of neighbor, where Jesus said, yes, those are your neighbors, but you know who else is your neighbor? Everybody else. Now for us, we have the exact opposite problem, right? In our world, like we have unlimited reach. We have social media, right? Like everybody is our neighbor, right? Especially the people that like us. Those are like our favorite neighbors, right? So everybody's our neighbor. And this is a moment where Jesus wants to help us focus in and go, yes, those people are your neighbors, but you know who else is your neighbor? Like your really annoying next door neighbor. It's the people who, uh, who live on your street and they have really, really messy lives. It's the people that are not easy to love. Those are your neighbors. But in addition to that, we also have to remember the gospel. We've got to remember the story of God's grace that, that we haven't been saved because uh, we got our act together. God didn't save us because we were just so easy to love, right? God didn't save us because we kept all the rules. Listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, let me tell you why you're a Christian. It's by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's grace. Listen, friends, God moved towards you when you were at your worst. You think there's darkness in our city? Like, you should have seen the darkness that was in your heart, the darkness that you lived in on a regular basis when Jesus came towards you, when he came and brought the shalom of God to reconcile you to the Father. Why? Because he loved you. It's grace. That's not where it ends. 
right? A lot of us, like, we hear the gospel, and we hear what it means for us, and we're like, cool, good sermon. Let's go home. I feel encouraged. But there's actually more. And so we want to remember our neighbors, want to remember the gospel, but we've also got to remember that we have one life. We have one life, friends. Book of Jonah ends with this really weird story, right? Like, if you've never gotten all the way through the book of Jonah, if you just got to the whale part, then, like, keep going, like, fill in the rest of the, the gaps at some point. It's really, it's a fun story. But it ends in a really, really weird way, and I'm about to spoil it. And I'm not sorry about that. Here's how it ends. Jonah is sitting and he's looking down at the city of Nineveh where God has just poured out mercy and grace and revival's happening and it's amazing. And Jonah is sitting, looking down, fuming because of the work of God in this city. He's angry with God. He's mad that he would save these heathens. And what happens is God causes this plant to grow up over Jonah and it's a really hot day, sun's beating down, and this plant climbs up and gives him shade. And it says in that moment, even in all of his disgust and anguish, Jonah gets shade from this plant, so he's glad. And then the next day, God sends a worm, right? It's a weird story. God sends a worm, it attacks this plant, plant withers, and it dies. And so the sun, again, is beating down on Jonah. God sends a hot wind A nice day in Oklahoma, it sounds like. And Jonah, again, is like mad. He's upset with God. But this time, he's not just mad that God has saved a bunch of people that should have been, in his mind, unsavable, right? God, now at this point, Jonah is mad also because there's no way for him to retreat back into his own comfort, into his own security. And what this exposes is that he cares way more about that than what God's been up to. Now, it's a bizarre story, but it juxtaposes the love that God has for the city, the way that God loves people who are far from him, the way that God has compassion and sees these people not as a loss, not as a nuisance, but a sheep without a shepherd, and he has compassion and love for these people who are so, so far from him. And it contrasts that love that God has for the city with the love that Jonah has for himself and for his own comfort and for his own security And the reality for us in the West is that we are so prone to operate the same way as Jonah, right? We remember the gospel, and we celebrate the gospel, and we go, man, that is such good news for me. But then we forget that the gospel is not just for us. It's not only for us. It's not that uh, the gospel terminates when we get fire insurance, and then we're good, like, God, just take me to heaven. No, man, there's good works for us to walk into. And what happens is we are prone to start looking at the gospel the way Jonah looked at that plant and start asking the gospel to do things that it was never meant to do. Bring me comfort. Shield me from the world. Insulate me from all the darkness. I want, I want following Jesus to be really easy and enjoyable and comfortable. And, and we want to build ourselves up in such a way that we don't have to face the reality that we actually live in a dump and in a place that's really, really dark. The problem with all that is that's not the gospel. Jesus didn't save you just to take you out of the world. 
That's not why he saved you. Jesus saved you for good works, and he's invited you and I into his mission to bring the shalom of God and to bring the love of God to all of our neighbors and into our city because he has love for our city, and he wants his people to be the very fragrance and the very presence of Christ in a really dark world. I love this poem by C.T. Studd. Normally not a big poem guy, but I like this one. And the, the favorite stanza in this is this. It says, Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life, t'will soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Friends, we have one life. Listen, there's coming a day when God is going to wipe away every tear from every eye, there's coming a day where there will be no more darkness, where there won't be fatherlessness, there won't be poverty in our city, right? There's, there's coming a day when sin and death, they're all going to be gone. There's coming a day when we're not going to have to say goodbye to each other. But until that day, we've been invited to run a race. We've been called to run a race. Until that day... We've been called not to just sit on the sidelines, right? Not to run for a little bit and sprint ahead or retire early. No, we've been called to run a race, eyes fixed on Jesus, running the race, and that doesn't end until you and I drop dead. We're called to run the race. And we're called to have a heart of love for the city that we bring the shalom of God in every facet of life and in every pocket of the city where God sends us. And here's the beautiful thing about all that is we don't have to do this alone. We don't have to do any of this alone. We're running a race and we're not called to do that with our own grit and determination. If you're a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit of God lives inside of you. He's there to give you gifts He's there to empower you, and he's there to lead you. You are not alone, right? You have the Spirit of God. But in addition to that, God has given us each other. And so we don't have to run this race alone. We get to do it with one another. And so what do we do with all this? Well, friends, if, you are, if you're here today and you're not in a community group, and the invitation is get plugged into a community group. Lock arms with other believers, like be discipled, be on mission, do that together, okay? And listen, maybe you've tried that before and maybe you're going to try it this time and it's gonna, you're going to show up. It's going to be weird. It's going to feel awkward, right? Like people are going to ask you questions that are a little too personal. It's going to feel somewhat strange and, and you're going to feel the, the temptation to just bounce. Listen, it's going to be a little bit weird and you know what? That's okay. That's okay. Like you need to be there because we're running a race We've got to do this together. If you're in a community group, my question to you is, are you really in? Like maybe you're physically there, but are you really bought in? Are you there? Because I think some of us, it gets really easy to slip in management mode where we just start showing up to community group and we look at our groups like Jonah looked at that plant and we go like, hey, what can you do for me? 
Like, I want the fellowship. I want, you know, all the things that I can get out of community group. But please, like, shield me from the darkness in this world. Please, let's, let's be a place where we can hide. I don't want to be in the city. I don't want to know what God has really called me to. I just want to do what's easy. I just want to do what's safe. And listen, if that's you, can I just say lovingly, get off the sidelines. Jesus did not save you so that you could retire early, move to Florida, and sip fruity drinks. That's not the point. Jesus saved you, and he's got good works for you to to walk in. And when Jesus calls you to follow him, he calls you to lay down your life and run a race. And so we want to step into that by the power of the Holy Spirit. So God, we look to you today, and we just say, God, we want to go for it, God. We know that we're your people. We know what you've called us to. And we see the work. We see the need in our city. And we just say, God, in a lot of ways, we feel at a loss because we can't do enough to change our own hearts, God. We can't change what we feel, God. We, we, We know that we look at our neighbors and we don't have love for them in our hearts automatically. We know that we struggle to see the world, to see our neighbors the way that you see them. And so, God, we're asking that you would do a, a radical work in our, our hearts, God. We ask that you would help us uh, to have compassion for our neighbors. And so, God, would you just remind us again and again and again of what you've done in our lives, of the way that you've loved us. And God, I pray that you would continue to soften our hearts and give us a heart for our neighbors. God, those who are really far from you, those who are really hard to love. And God, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help us to move towards all of those people with love in our hearts and with compassion. And God, as we as we go back home even today and live our lives, God, we ask that you would equip us and help us to bring your very presence to our communities for your glory and by the power of your spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.